Let's get our Bibles out to Judges. Am I good? Judges chapter 6, 7? Something like that, 6, yeah. Uh, I can barely hear myself. Can you turn me up a little bit, Cohen? I don't know if you have noticed, there we go, uh, the theme of this morning's service and one of the main themes of this morning's sermon uh, is weakness. And that's something that I feel the weight of every Sunday that I stand in this pulpit trying to preach God's word to God's people. So let me go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be our strength. Join me. Father, there's nothing that I can do by my own power. My inclination is to trust in my flesh to, to, to trust in wisdom and eloquence of which I have very little. But God, you, uh, you don't need me. You have your word, you have your people, you have your spirit. That's everything that we need for you to do good work on our hearts this morning and to, to build up this church into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask not for our sake, God, but for the glory of your name that you would move. Amen. I've got three points for you this morning, note takers, three points. Here they are, point number one, the enemy within. Point number two, the supremacy of God. And point number three, the weakness of Gideon. The enemy within, supremacy of God, (coughs) and the weakness of Gideon. Point number one, the enemy within. Now, I know, I know what you were hoping, I know what you were hoping for this morning, that we'd spend some time talking about COVID. Well, hope no more. Here we go. In the earliest days of the COVID-19 pandemic, we began to see that not everyone was equally affected by this new and scary virus. The elderly, for example, it seemed were at greater risk. Children were essentially at zero risk. We also saw that those with compromised immune systems were in more danger than everyone else. That makes sense. Pretty obvious. But as the experts began to dig deeper, sometimes these experts had initials after the name with a lot of training. Sometimes they were just people on Twitter. But as they all sort of cumulatively worked in the same direction, culling through the data and the evidence they began to see that something just didn't quite make sense, that there seemed to be more to the story than senior citizens and immunocompromised being the sickest, the hardest hit. The data seemed to indicate that many nations with a high population of elderly citizens, so you think Japan and South Korea, well, these were less hard hit by COVID than other nations with far fewer senior citizens. Hmm. Well, as the experts continue to comb through the data, they wanted to know, why are some people in some places harder hit by this virus than other people in other places? Oftentimes in ways that are counterintuitive to what we think we understand about this virus. Is it something related to ethnicity? Uh, Do people in the southern, uh, you know, provinces of Asia, do they have some sort of gene turned on or off that makes them more genetically uh, resilient to this virus? Is there some kind of uh, benefit that's conveyed with some sort of vaccination that they receive in one part of the world that we don't receive in this part of the world? Could it be diet related? You think about the, the Mediterranean diet, you know, they eat nothing but healthy fats and olives, you know, maybe that conveys some sort of protection to those people in that part of the world. Well, as time passed and as more data became available and as we began to understand more and more and the picture became clear, one metric began to come into view more than any other metric. Body mass index. How big you are, how heavy you are. In in most countries, obesity. What soon became clear is that overweight populations are far and away the hardest hit demographic by this virus. So you see that the countries that were severely impacted by COVID were countries that were full of overweight people. 
The World Obesity Federation published a report in 2021, and it analyzed the mortality data from Johns Hopkins University and uh, WHO Global Health Observatory, and they found, quote, COVID-19 death rates are 10 times higher in countries where more than half of the adult population is classified as overweight. It continues, of the 2.5 million COVID-19 deaths reported by the end of February 2021, so that's 2.5 million, 2.2 million were in countries where over half of the population is classified as overweight. You guys tracking? It's a pretty simple argument. One more little piece here. Taking data from over 160 countries, this report found that linear correlations existed between a country's COVID-19 mortality rate and the proportion of adults that are overweight. There is not a single example of a country with less than 40% of the population overweight that has death rates higher than 10 per 100,000. Now, if your head's kind of spinning, simply put, if your country is fat and out of shape, you're going to be harder hit by the virus than other countries that are not so fat and out of shape by a factor of 10. Now, in light of this information, I want you to consider the public health messaging that we have received from our government, from news media, and others. We've heard a lot about social distancing, masks, vaccination, and so on. Now, whether some of that or any of that or all of that is accurate, we can argue about that over lunch after church. That's kind of beside the point right now. The point that I'm trying to make right now is that in light of this information, we still have not heard anything from our public health experts about dieting, eating clean, exercising, being active, doing all the sorts of things that can protect us from that which makes us susceptible to the virus. Now, let me be clear. COVID-19 is real. I have like 10 people who texted me this morning that said that they weren't going to be here because they have COVID, okay? It's real. And it is dangerous. It is an external enemy. But let me also be equally clear that we are focusing so much on our external enemy while doing nothing to confront the enemy within. Our nation's health crisis. Addressing the enemies at the gates while failing to address the enemy within the city walls is a tale as old as time itself, certainly as old as the book of Judges. As Will began to demonstrate last week, the people of Israel in general, and Gideon in particular, they are hyper-focused on the enemy out there, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east who are coming together against Israel to take over the land. But they are painfully, tragically unaware and apathetic of the enemy within. That which is making them susceptible in the first place to the attacks of the Amalekites, the Midianites, and the peoples of the East. And that is their idolatry. Let's look at the enemy out there. Look at chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their cam camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. This is a real enemy. But the enemy within Israel, the enemy which is making them susceptible to these people in the first place, is even greater still. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. This morning we are going to see how God raises up Gideon to rescue Israel from their external enemies. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the peoples of the east who were united against the Jews. But before God calls Gideon to destroy these external enemies of Israel, he calls on Gideon to destroy the enemy within. Look at verses 25 and 26. That night the Lord said to him, (coughs) and that's Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So what do we have here? God is saying to Gideon, Before you can have military victory on these enemies outside of your gates, you need to have spiritual victory in Israel. You need to have victory over your idols. Now, we're going to get more specific about this in point number two, but let me just just finish out point number one with uh, three points of application. Application point number one, look within. We live in the age of the meme, do we not? Mimi, is that how you pronounce it? Meme? Either way. It seems like there's a meme to fit every scenario of our lives. And uh, the worst thing, old people, you should know that you can do with a meme is try to explain it to someone instead of just showing it to them, right? Anyways, uh, there's this meme on the internet that I think really perfectly captures what's happening here. It's the meme of the guy who's pointing in the mirror and he says, you're the cause of all my problems, right? It's true. We can oftentimes be our own worst enemy, but we rarely recognize it. Our natural tendency, and it's like a reflex. I mean, we don't even have to think about it. It just happens is to automatically assume that all of our problems are caused by someone out there. All of our problems are caused by something outside of us. And as we have seen with the COVID-19 pandemic and with our text this morning, the enemy out there is real. The world and its systems, the devil, dangerous, a real threat, can take us out. But make no mistake, friends, the greatest threat that we have to deal with is the threat within, indwelling sin. The threat that makes us susceptible to the machinations of the world and Satan in the first place is the most significant threat. Without our indwelling sin, Satan and the world have nothing to work with. They have no material. They have no father, uh, fodder. So I think we would be wise then to whenever we encounter a threat to our spiritual health, to begin by looking in. Now, notice, I I don't say look within only. Pretend like there's nothing going on outside of yourself. Pretend like there's no external threat. No, I'm just saying begin by looking within, and then once you've dealt with that, then look out and deal with the external threat. Let me give you an example. Men, this is for you. Lock in, focus up. Uh, it is very common for men to blame our lust problems on women. Do women lead men into lust? Absolutely. You better believe it. Women, don't do that. (laughs) But can you blame it all on tight yoga pants and low-cut tops? I mean, what what would happen in your heart if the yoga pants and the low-cut tops disappeared tomorrow. Would your lust just disappear? No. You know, you can can be an aesthetic. You can move out into the wilderness with just the dust and the tumbleweeds and the scorpions 
And if you do, all out there alone in a cave somewhere by yourself, you will find that the only company you have is the lust that's still with you. The yoga pants are gone, the crop tops have disappeared, and your lust is still there. Am I saying that women should not adorn themselves modestly? No, I'm not saying that at all. They absolutely should. I'm just saying when you're wrestling with your lust, let your first impulse not be to blame your sister, but to look within your heart. And then we can have a conversation about how we're, you know, adorning ourselves. But this applies to us as well uh, at a corporate level. As a church, we can be very, very concerned about boogeymen outside of the church, right? So you think about the rising tide of secularism. That's a real threat. It's real. It's happening. A storm is gathering. Evangelicals are digging holes in the mountains. They're building their caves. They're ready to go make their retreats. You think about something like critical theory. It's there. It's real. It's dangerous. But we can focus on those things so much that we're just like Gideon if we fail to see the enemy within. The idols that exist within the church that make us susceptible to things like the rising tide of secularism. I mean, how many conferences and do you see being put on to combat pragmatism in the church, which may be the biggest threat of all? How many books and articles do you see being written on that? Not a lot. We can be so concerned with the danger outside of the church's walls that we never stop to ask ourselves what may be happening in the life of the church that makes us susceptible to these dangers in the first place. So point number one, Look within, look first, and then move out. Point number two, or application point number two, friendly fire. Friendly fire. Look at verses 29 through 30. (coughs) We'll start in 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So what do we see here? Well, the main thing I want to draw your attention to is that the townspeople were so incensed, and these were Israelites, they were so incensed by Gideon's destruction of these idols that they wanted to kill him. A violent mob broke out and wanted to kill him because he tore down these idols. What's the lesson here? Be careful of messing with people's idols, especially within the church, especially among God's people. Friends, you should know that people do not like to get poked in the idols. How should you know that? Because you don't like to get poked in the idol. You get caught up in some sin. A brother or sister in the church sees it. They love you. They're worried about you. They've taken a covenant in the church to to care for you. And so even though it's really hard for them, They come to you, and maybe they're not that brave, and they just come to you via text message or a phone call or an email, but maybe they come to you in person, and they say the hard thing to you, and they poke you in your idol, and what is your immediate reaction? It is almost never, and I know this because I'm speaking from personal experience, oh, thank you so much for pointing out this sin in my life. That's almost never our first reaction. We don't like to get poked in the idol. Much less do we like to see our gods utterly destroyed before our eyes. In destroying these idols, Gideon angered the people who were supposedly on the same team. Team Yahweh. Team there is only one God. Team there shall be no other gods before Yahweh. And I guess what I want you to hear this morning is that if it happened to Gideon, it can happen to you. Do you remember what happened to Jesus, the greater Gideon, when he pointed out the idolatry of the religious leaders and the people of Israel? They killed him. If it happened to him, 
It can happen to you. I think Jesus said something about that, didn't it? If they hated me, then they'll hate you, something like that. Now, I want to be clear here. Before you run around destroying idols, you need to make sure that you've accurately identified the idols, that you've actually locked target with a real enemy. The last thing I want is some young, gung-ho, reformer-minded guy in the church who just destroys what we're working for because you think you've identified an idol in your midst when in fact you haven't. But assuming that you have accurately and biblically identified an idol in your midst, then you need to destroy it. You need to cut it down. You need to tear it down. You need to burn it. And if you do that, you need to understand that you will make enemies. You cannot please all the people all the time, but when you're tearing down idols, you're going to make a lot of people really mad really fast. And you just need to accept that. And understand that when that happens, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus who did that before you. Application point number three. Subsidiarity. Huh? That's a fancy word. I know things. The doctrine of subsidiarity, it's, it's an organizing principle, okay? And it says that matters ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority. Uh, said another way, uh, think local, right? Things should be handled at a local level first and foremost. And then if they can't be handled there, it should go beyond. So what I, what I want us to see here is that in this text, God does not call on Gideon to go destroy all of the Baals and all of the Asherah strongholds in all of Israel. No. He calls on Gideon to destroy the one in his midst. Look at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. That's the smallest circle in the concentric circles of responsibility that you can have. Gideon, dude, it's right in your backyard. It's your dad's idol. Go cut it down. And this reminds us, of course, of the rich man in Lazarus. Right? God did not hold... Uh, the rich man accountable for all of the poor, poor people in the world. God did not send the rich man to hell because he didn't help all of the poor people in the world. He sent the rich man to hell because he ignored the poor man that was sitting at his gate, at his door. He had to walk past him every time he left his house and he ignored him. Gideon had to walk past this idol day in and day out. So that is what he was first and foremost responsible for. In this hyper-connected world, I know that it feels like we can just reach across the globe and change the world with a snap of a finger or the click of a mouse, and that we should be responsible for every bad thing that's happening out there on all seven continents and in all four oceans. Four, right? But I want you to know that that's an illusion. It's an illusion. You... You're one person, even all of us together in one church. We're 70-something people. We cannot conquer all the world's problems. God will not hold us accountable for what's happening in Zimbabwe or Tajikistan. We will first and foremost be held accountable for that which is in our grasp. The idols that we must kill are the idols that are within our reach. So what does that mean? It means that you need to spend more time worrying about this local church and less time worrying about what's happening out there in evangelicalism. Spend more time in your community evangelizing and if you think you need to be advocating for justice and so on and so forth and less time on Twitter. It means you need to spend more time evangelizing and discipling your family, your neighborhood, and those in your immediate relational sphere. And less time acting like pinky in the brain. You know, plotting to, to take over the world with your gospel aspirations. 
Now note, I didn't say don't ever think globally. I'm not saying don't ever think beyond the bounds of your immediate nuclear family and your local church. In our members meeting coming up on January 16th, we're going to talk about how we're going to use a portion of our budget to help God's mission among the nations. That is true. But what I want us to see here from this text is that we are first and foremost responsible for that which is nearest to us. We need to handle that first before we move on. Point number two, the supremacy of God. When our church was walking through 1 Corinthians together on Wednesday nights, one point that I kept trying to drive home, because it was right there in chapter one, I tried to drive it home all the way through the rest of the book, is, is God's philosophy of ministry. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but, but for this week, I want you to hear this. God does everything that he does the way that he does it to maximize his own glory. If there are 10 different ways for God to do something, and in the third way, he receives 70% glory, in the fourth way, he receives 10% glory, but the 10th way, he receives 100% of the glory, he's always going to choose number 10. God is hungry for his own glory, and you see that in this text. You see that in this destruction of the idols. Let's go back and read verses 25 and 26, just to have it fresh in our minds, and then I'm going to unpack it for us. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. The first thing I want you to notice here is the bull. The bull that Gideon uses. The Lord tells Gideon to pull the idol of Baal down with two bulls. Why bulls? You ever stop and think about that? Why bulls? Why is that significant? Well, if you know anything about the religions of the ancient Near East... From Canaan all the way down to Egypt, you know that in these religions, their deities, their idols are always represented by an animal figure. Do you know which animal figure represents Baal? The bull. And so what we see here in God having Gideon pull down the Baal with a bull is a flex. God is dunking on Baal. He's posterizing him, I think, if that's how that's used. He's putting Baal's power to shame in the most obvious way, but that's not all. Then God has Gideon build an altar on top of where these false gods used to stand, and then he has Gideon offer the bull as a sacrifice where Baal used to stand. Big flex. God is saying to everyone there that can observe this phenomenon that Baal is utterly powerless. God is saying, if you want to know what I think about Baal, you see that eviscerated, dead, burning bull? Yeah, that's what I think about your God. Where is your fertility now? Um... Before I broke my back, uh, I was big into jujitsu, and uh, I, I used to. There's one competitor in particular that I'm a big fan of, because to watch him compete is amazing. It, it's I guess what it must have been like to watch Michael Jordan in his prime. I mean, th- this guy doesn't just beat his opponents; he utterly embarrasses them, you know. And 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 he's so good that he eventually had to start challenging himself. So what he would do is <clears throat> he wouldn't just take a match with a really good guy. He would also say, I'm going to beat this guy with a particular move. And he would say it in advance, a triangle, an arm bar, a heel hook, a choke, whatever. And then that wasn't challenging enough. So he started saying, I'm going to use this move on this guy and I'm going to beat him at this time in the match. Minute 13, minute 14, minute 6, whatever. Constantly challenging himself. And then he would do it 
like Babe Ruth pointing where in the stadium he would hit his home run. I mean, it was just an amazing thing to watch. This guy doesn't just beat his opponents, he utterly embarrasses them. And that's what we see our God doing to these idols here with Gideon in the book of Judges. He is embarrassing them. But you should know that this is not the first time that God has done this. This is not the first flex from God over these ostensible gods. You remember back in the book of Exodus, the ten plagues, right? The frogs, the flies, the river turning to blood. Do you know that each one of these plagues was aimed directly at one of the false gods in ancient Egypt? One commentator says it like this. The plagues were designed to show the impotence, the utter powerlessness of the Egyptian idols and to display the supremacy of God's power over them. So, the first plague, turning water into blood, revealed the impotence of Noom, the guardian of the river. The second plague, the frogs, revealed the impotence of Hopi and Heket, who were symbolized by frogs. The third plague, lice, revealed the impotence of Seb, the earth god. The fourth plague, flies, revealed the impotence of Eutychit, the god of flies. The fifth plague, the disease on cattle, revealed the impotence of Ta, Navis, and Hathor, the Egyptian gods associated with bulls and cows. And I could just keep going through all ten, and you see each one of these was God being super intentional to embarrass the idols of the land. Friends, this is what our God does. He says, oh, okay, you're trusting in Serapia to protect you from the locusts? Watch this. He says, oh, you want to trust in the bull god, Baal? Yeah, this is what I think of Baal. Take your bull, tear Baal down, kill the bull, and show everyone what I think about this guy. But we're not done yet. God's not done flexing. Next, we have the wood. Look at verse 26 again. (coughs) After he's cut down the Asherah, God says to Gideon, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. This Asherah pole which represented this deity in Israel, God says, cut it down, chop it up, and use the wood to offer the bull as a sacrifice. That's a big flex, but we're not done yet. Look at 31 and 32. But Joash said to all who stood against him, and this is when the people come out and say, we want to kill him. And so Gideon's dad comes out and is like, well, we'll see. So then the the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Yeah. Joash, Gideon's dad, says, listen, if, if, if Baal's a real god, then let him come out and, and fight his own battles, right? But then he gives Gideon this nickname after that. Look what, look what we see in verse 32. Therefore, on that day, and I, we guess this is the day that Baal didn't respond, he didn't get up and fight for himself, Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he has broken down his altar. This is amazing. As you know, God is in the business of changing people's identities and then giving them a name that matches their new identity in him. And that's what we see here. And the name that, that, that Gideon receives, and by the way, it sticks with him. It's the name that's used of him all throughout the rest of the book of Judges, is Jeroboam. Let Baal fight if he's a real God. Jeroboam. And this is just a perpetual reminder for the people of God that Baal cannot fight for himself. But we're not done yet. Just consider the weakness as our final subpoint in point number two. Consider the significance of God using a weakling like Gideon to humiliate these Canaanite deities. 
I cannot overstate the significance of God choosing someone as weak as Gideon to flex his strength in Israel. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, I don't need the mighty. I don't need the wise. I don't need a fearless warrior to go out and tear down these idols. I'm going to use weak, pathetic, no faith having Gideon to accomplish my strong purposes. I don't need strength to kill off these false gods and destroy these idols. I can use the weak things of Israel to shame the supposedly strong gods of Canaan. This has to be what Paul had in mind when he wrote, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Which leads me to point number three. The weakness of Gideon. <coughs> the weakness of Gideon. Guys, Gideon is so weak. Oh, okay, let's try again. Guys, Gideon is so weak. Man, he's really weak. Let's survey the evidence. When we first encounter Gideon at the beginning of chapter 6, he's cowering in fear at the bottom of the wine press, right? Then in verse 15, he confesses his own weakness like this. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Manasseh, not that strong of a clan. My clan within Manasseh is the weakest clan. And then even in my own father's house, I'm the weakest guy there. And then finally, we're going to see this in a minute, but uh, Gideon was... Uh, excuse me, uh, we see Gideon is too afraid to tear down the altar by day, right? Go back and look at verse 27 again. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him because, you know, it was a big job. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Okay, you know, you get like a C minus, Gideon. You did it, but you were so afraid of everyone, of your own family, of the people in the town, that you did it all sneaky-like, you know? You had to do it when you thought nobody would find out. You know, you get, you get no points for bravery here, buddy. He did it, but he did it in an incredibly weak way. And then, and then the final demonstration of his weakness is the testing of the fleece. Look at verses 36 through 40. <coughs> then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry all around the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he's requesting a miracle. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me just once more speak. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only. And in all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. How weak is Gideon? He's as weak as he can possibly be. He is full of fear. He's full of doubt. He's full of self-loathing. And he is constantly second-guessing God. If that feels like you, I want to encourage you to really pay attention for the rest of this sermon. Because we are going to see in the coming chapters that God is going to use Gideon in his weakness in a very powerful way. Let me show you three things that we can learn from the weakness of Gideon in the book of Judges. Number one is the danger of weakness. What do I mean when I refer to the danger of weakness? Well, consider this testing that we just read about, the testing of the fleece. This was a very, very dangerous thing for Gideon to do. Why was it so dangerous? Well, because God had specifically commanded Israel not to test him in this way. Deuteronomy 6. 
Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. So here we see God saying to his people Israel, you remember how you tested me, right? When we were at Massah, don't do that again, right? It kind of feels like a, a real parental thing to do. Don't do that again. But how did, how did Israel test God when they were at Massah? Well, this is what happened. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, now listen, how did they test the Lord saying, is the Lord God among us or not? This is the connection. God had already demonstrated his presence to the Israelites by the time we get to this point in Exodus in a big way. He showed up in Egypt and he showed up with guns blazing, fireworks, miracles, signs and wonders galore. And they say, is the Lord among us or not? God is not pleased by this, nor should he be. If you're a parent, just imagine maybe your 12 or 14-year-old coming up to you, your son or your daughter, saying, are you really who you say you are? Are you really going to do what you've promised to do for me? Are you really here for me? If my children did that to me, I would be hurt and angry. I would ask, how could you, how could you possibly doubt my love for you after all that I've done to demonstrate that for you in a very real, concrete way? Now here's the thing. Israel was wrong for testing the Lord in that way, but Gideon is doubly guilty. Because he already knew this before he tested the Lord. This was already a reality to him, which is why he, he frames his testing the way that he does. Look in verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Let me test you just once more. Let not your anger burn against me. This language of burning anger that Gideon uses here This is the language of utter destruction. It's the language that God uses towards Israel when they continue to test him after he already told them not to test him. Listen to how God uses this language in Exodus 32.10. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them and I may consume them. Gideon is using this charged language of God's burning against him because he understands that he is doing that which God says he should not do. But he's weak and he says, I don't know what else to do, God, I'm afraid, so I'm just going to do it anyways. I'm going to test you. Are you really here? Mm. Gideon's faith was so weak that it led him into the potential path of destruction. Now, it's true that God was merciful, and he did not give Gideon what he deserved, but I do not want your takeaway from this to be that I should feel free to test the Lord, and that even if I test him once and he's kind and does the miracle for me, that I should then feel inclined, in light of his kindness, to test him again. Well, Gideon did it, yeah, as an example of what you should not do. Now, let me be clear. There's absolutely nothing wrong with us going to God in the midst of our weakness, our doubt, our suffering, our sorrow, our sin, and confessing our weakness to him and asking him to reveal himself to us. God, I feel so low. You feel so far away. My faith feels so weak. Please, just remind me again that you're here. That's not wrong, In any way, what is wrong is when God has demonstrably shown himself to you and then you keep on asking again and again and again and again, which is really just demonstrating the unbelief in your heart. Do you see how incredibly gentle and merciful God is towards Gideon in this event? 
Gideon tested God the first time and God didn't have to go along with it. He didn't have to get the fleece wet and keep the ground dry. He didn't have to accommodate Gideon in his weakness. He could have unleashed his wrath. He could have let his anger burn, but he didn't. This is the God we serve. The God who takes your weak, frail, trembling hand and holds it and walks with you down the road of salvation. He takes our hand and he walks with us. Just like the cliche, oftentimes carrying us through the storm of our fears and doubts. This aspect of God's character is expressed all over the Bible. All over the Bible. You see it on every other page, but there's one place that you see it, I think, with a sort of crystal clarity. Do you remember the demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9? You remember that story? The boy's father goes to Jesus in utter desperation. Utter desperation. Very little faith. And this is what he says to Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Right? He doesn't know if he believes in this Jesus guy. He thinks that he might. He's heard good things. His child is dying. So he goes to Jesus with very weak faith. And Jesus is not super pleased with the language he used. If? If you can do anything? This is what Jesus says. If you can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. Jesus is saying, you don't really believe. Your faith is so weak. This was obviously not a comfort to the father. It cuts him to the heart. His child is dying. And in the next breath, he cries out to Jesus in the midst of his being cut down. And he says, I believe. But help my unbelief. And I feel like this is the verse that characterizes my entire Christian life. Every day, every week, every month, I think, God, I do believe. But I know I don't believe like I should. So please help me. Help me as a husband. Help me as a father. Help me as a brother in Christ. Help me to be a pastor. Help my unbelief. And he always does. He's never let me down. He's never castigated me. He's never scolded me. Isn't that true of you? Have you ever, got, have you ever gone to God in your weakness and felt like he scolded you for being low? This is not the heart of our God towards us. The heart of our God towards us in our weakness is that he is gentle, full of mercy and compassion and patience. We're full of sin and weakness and doubt. But he is full of mercy, compassion, and patience. So I want you to take comfort, weak saints of God. Take comfort that when this father cried out to Jesus and said, help my unbelief, Jesus said, okay. And he healed the boy. Take comfort that the God of Gideon, the God of weak Abraham, weak Noah, weak Moses, weak David, weak Peter, he is the God of screw-ups and misfits. He is your God and mine, and he is loving towards us in our weakness. Which leads me to point number two, or sub-point number two. Lean into weakness. Now, let me be clear. I meant everything that I just said in point number one. Weakness is dangerous. But like many gospel realities, there is an equal and opposite truth that must be held in balance. And the equal and opposite truth that must be held in balance here is that our weakness is a very good thing. In the coming chapters of Judges, we're going to see that God uses Gideon in a very big way. And although God's, uh, Gideon's weakness was disproportionate to the point of sinfulness, 
we must also recognize that if Gideon was not weak at all, he could have never been used by God. God is not interested in using the powerful, in using the wise, in using the self-confident to accomplish his purposes. If Gideon would have been a bold, fearless, mighty warrior, he would have never been recorded in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith. If he had an innate sense of his own strength, he could have never been filled with the strength of God that can only be received by those who have been humbled. So brothers and sisters, if you feel weak, you should delight in the fact that God uses weak people to demonstrate his strength. You know, I always think about the Apostle Thomas and how unfortunate it is for him that he got the nickname Doubting Thomas, you know? Because it seems to communicate the idea that uh, Thomas was the only one who ever doubted Jesus, but we know that that's not true. The entire Bible from Abraham to the Apostle Peter, is full of men and women that doubted God and his promises, and they were usually repeat offenders. Think about uh, Peter, right? We're going to talk about him a little bit later, so I won't get ahead of myself. But here's my point. Be wary of your weakness, but also lean into it. One of the things that makes my heart sink as a pastor is whenever I build relationships with church members who, the more I get to know them, the more they just always seem to have it together. You know what I'm saying? How's your marriage? Good. Are you struggling with any sins? No, not really. Well, how are you doing with your faith? Are you, are you wrestling with doubt? Are you struggling to obey God's will for your life in any way? Nope, nope, nope. I'm talking about brothers and sisters who just always seem to have it all together. Nothing is ever wrong. They're never wrestling with God. They're never in a fight for their life against sin. They never feel weak, discouraged, or depressed. Listen to me. If you are never weak, then Christ will never be strong in you. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. So maybe a good question for you to ask yourself is, when was the last time I boasted about my weakness? When was the last time I was honest with a brother or sister in the Lord about ways that I'm struggling I don't know how you were raised. A lot of this has to do with family dynamics. I don't know how you score on the Myers-Briggs test. You know, some of this is like, I'm an INTJ, you know. I don't have emotions. But I do know that every single one of us, there's not a single person in this room that's an exception. Every single one of us is weak in one way or another. So, Here's what I'm saying. If you never feel weak or if you never confess your weakness, I'm assuming that one of two things is happening with you. This is my pastoral assessment. Number one, you're a hypocrite. You're walking around with a mask on. You're pretending that everything is okay when it isn't. Or, number two, you're self-deluded. You really do always feel strong. You really never do feel weak. You really do think that everything is okay all the time. And in a world affected by the fall, that just cannot be true. Either one of these, if it is happening in your life, is evidence of tremendous spiritual pride. The kind of pride that you should know the Lord opposes in the strongest possible terms. The eyes of the Lord search the earth for those who are humble. That's what scripture says. But God opposes the proud. He opposes those who seem like they have it all together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
The third point I want you to see here is the necessity to move on from weakness. Another thing to keep in tension. Let's add another element of tension here. Let me break it down. We must recognize our weakness and be wary of it. We must then lean into it, trusting that God will be made strong in our weakness. But we must also move on from it by believing that God really and truly does make us strong. So, in verse 12, for example, a little tongue-in-cheek, God calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. Oh, mighty man of valor. So afraid you won't even do it in the daylight. Oh, mighty man of valor hiding in the wine press. Oh, mighty man of valor sitting staring at a piece of fleece hoping it's wet or not wet so that you don't have to go to battle. But it was true. Or I should say it became true. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says. <coughs> and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, then he lists a bunch of other people, but Gideon, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness. We can and should recognize our weakness and lean into it, but we must not indulge in it. We must not wallow in our weakness. We must not give ourselves over to it like those who don't know God who is strong, like those who are not united by the Holy Spirit to the strong God of the universe. When God is telling us over and over and over again in his word that he is indeed making us strong, we must believe that he is indeed making us strong. That's the only thing that keeps me going as a pastor. I feel weak all the time, and I lean into it, and I preach the truth. He, he, I'm made strong. You know, He's showing his strength off through me. But man, it's so hard. It's so hard to keep going when you feel so weak all the time. But God gives us the grace to believe this promise, that he is doing what he promises to do. And so we read in the book of Hebrews, Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. For God is strengthening you by the power of his might. In closing, I want to draw your attention to one thing in verse 34. <clears throat> but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. You see what's happening here? Gideon clothed in the Spirit of God. We're going to see next week that being clothed in the Spirit did not eliminate his weakness. Now let's go back to the Apostle Peter when I almost got ahead of myself earlier. You remember just how weak he was. In the Gospels, he's always getting it wrong. He's always sinning. He's always weak. And then, of course, right before the crucifixion, the weakness of Peter is put on full display by the fireside. He denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So weak. But the Lord restores him. He's gentle towards Peter in his weakness. He's forgiving. He's full of mercy and compassion and patience. He restores him. And then we see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down on Peter in the day of Pentecost, not only clothing him, but filling him so that he can go out and do the work of an apostle and build up the church of Jesus Christ. And so we think, well then, filled to the brim with the Spirit, the days of Peter's weaknesses are over. Amen? No. Galatians 2. Paul says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Fear of man. Does that remind you of Gideon? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. 
leading others in his weakness to be weak like him. Remind you of Gideon, the 10 guys. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and so I opposed them. Fear of man, leading others astray, hypocrisy, conduct that was out of step with the truth of the gospel, all while being filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. What do we learn from this? The most important thing that I want you to see this morning in these frail, feeble, Holy uh, Holy Spirit-empowered servants is that we need a hero greater than even the greatest that mankind has to offer. As uh, most of you, but maybe not all of you know, I recently had back surgery and uh, I had a herniated disc. Basically, I had a little hole in one of the spongy things in my back that allowed the stuff on the inside to come on the outside and it was very painful. Now, one of the things that the surgeon told me uh, after the surgery was that the disc would never have full strength again. He said that even though the hole in the disc was small and even though it would heal, the scar that would be there to replace the hole would never be as strong as the original. So he says, be careful lifting weights in the future. It will be all too easy for you to re-herniate, for that hole to open up again, exposing this perpetual weakness of your disc. I think that's a pretty good picture of what sin does to our souls. Sin messes us up. It leaves us with a big hole right in the middle of our spirit. But then if we're Christians, we get saved. Praise God. The Holy Spirit comes along and he does surgery on our souls. He patches us up. He gets us moving again. But friends, sin has already done its damage. We will never be what we once were as long as we remain in these bodies of death. Which means that even the best of us, even the most heroic of us, the holy of us, the mightiest in our midst, we are all perpetually weak. But not Jesus. Jesus never knew sin. So he was never weakened by sin. He never failed to trust his father. He never questioned God's mission for his life. He never had to set out a fleece and say, God, are you you sure you want me to go to the cross? He never tested God, but rather entrusted himself to God, even under the point of death, death on a cross. What I want you to see here about the God that we serve is that he was so strong that he became weak. As weak as death itself. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for he was crucified in weakness. That just goes right over our heads. It's just like water off of a duck's back. He was crucified in weakness. He who? He God the eternal word, the one who created the universe, the one who has been strong since before all of eternity. He was crucified in weakness. This is his strength. And then Paul goes on and he says, but he lives by the power of God. He lives. Sin and death did not have the last word on Jesus. Weakness was not the last word for Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, weakness is not the last word for you either. You are being made strong. And I know right now it feels like an impossibly long process and the, the, the progress seems not at all linear. It feels like nothing but peaks and valleys and more valleys than peaks and it feels like you're never gonna get there, but you will get there. The doubting, the fear, the testing of God, all of that will one day come to an end if you are in Christ which is why Paul says a little bit later in 2 Corinthians, we will live with him by the power of God. But if we are not in Christ, friends, we should know that we will only get weaker and weaker 
and weaker and weaker until the ultimate weakness overtakes us. And we, like Christ, die in weakness. But if you're not in Christ, then you will never be resurrected to power and strength. You'll go to hell. You'll sit under the wrath of God and you will grow weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker in your sin for the rest of eternity. But the good news of the gospel is that that doesn't have to be your fate. You don't have to experience that. The gospel says that if you want to be made alive and strong, all you have to do is turn away from your weakness and trust in Christ who is strong. And this is how the gospel is so counterintuitive. It says that the way to escape is to go deeper in. The way out is in. The path to power will lead you through the valley of weakness. It is the only way. So confess your weakness today and be made strong in Jesus. Now, before uh, I pray and we sing our closing hymn, I just want to have a teachable moment here. I know that our music is not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, by the way, the music that we sing here, it doesn't belong to any particular culture. Do you think I grew up listening, and listening to hymns that were sung on piano and guitar? No. Unless you're like 80, the music that we sing here is foreign to all of our cultures. But there's a reason why we sing the music the way we do and the reason why we sing the words that we do and the songs that we do. There's a reason why we don't sing superficial drivel and we tend to sing a lot of hymns that are full of rich theology. Listen to the words of this hymn that we're about to sing together. Afflicted saint, to Christ draw near. Your Savior's gracious promise here, his faithful word you can believe, that as your days, your strength shall be. Your faith is weak, your foes are strong. And if the conflict should be long, the Lord will make the tempter flee, that as your days your strength shall be. Should persecution rage and flame, should trust in your redeem, uh, still trust in your Redeemer's name. In fiery trials you shall see that as your days your strength shall be. When called to bear your weighty cross or sore affliction, pain or loss, or deep distress or poverty, still as your days your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle is fierce, but the victory is won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. Let's sing with joy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you've called us here together. As we have been scattered, living our lives this week, we have been under the influence of our sin, of the world, of Satan, in so many ways that we may not even realize. But because you love us, you command us to come back and to, to assemble as one body, to be strengthened by you and your word, by the power of your spirit. And God, we feel your strength. So now, help us to sing with joy to you, the God who deserves all honor and all glory and all praise forever and ever. Amen.